us. It's um, perhaps appropriate that God saw in his uh, providential plan to bring students to lead us in worship because uh, this weekend we've set aside to highlight the ministry of Eleven, um, which is also ministry to students. And, um, and so God has uh, bound this all together. And uh, at the same time, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So as we contemplate Leaven, which is about bread, uh, we're also going to partake of the, the Lord's Cup and also the bread. So again, a sovereign providential work of the Lord. Let me pray, and then I'm going to um, reflect for a few moments on Psalm 82. Um, thanks, for Archie, for praying for me. I'm going to pray again. Father, um, we just want to take a few moments and just once again bask in the, the reality of your love and to acknowledge your presence here with us. Um, and we pray that for those who don't yet know it, and even for those who may but have forgotten or have not experienced that you are here. Lord, I pray that you would never allow us to forget um, where we've come from, that we would never forget the chains that once bound our lives, the chains of sin and death, that we would never forget what it felt like to be mastered and controlled by the evil one. May we never forget what it felt like not to know the forgiveness of sins, what it was like to be blind and deaf and in prison. May we never forget at the same time how deep and how profound your love is that where our sin abounded, there your grace and love abounded all the more and that you took upon yourself the putrid massiveness of our sin to make us sons and daughters to live with you forever. And we we acknowledge, Lord God, that that love has been revealed most powerfully and distinctively and ultimately in the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, in whose name we gather together, in whose name we sing, in whose name we worship. Lord, help us to grasp the steadfast love of the Lord that never changes, that when, God, you place your love upon us, you never retract it. It is never broken. You, you follow us to the ends of the earth. Even David, David could say that though I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there with me, your love follows me there. And so, Lord, will you just um, speak to your people, allow us the grace by your Holy Spirit, not only to understand the truth, but also to have it enter into the realm of our human experience. So we, um, we commit this to you, and we commit to you um, these next few moments. We commit to you the taking of this bread and this cup that's supposed to remind us of what is central in life. And I pray this in the name of our precious, awesome, loving and merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things that I have grown in is my, um, my conviction that Christian people need to be more honest in it, about the good and the bad and the ugly of life, um, both in, in terms of our personal lives, but also in terms of our corporate life, too. Um, there is this cultural pressure, and you well know it, to, to be image-oriented and to project a, an image of strength. But oftentimes what's behind that image is, is nothing but a weak and frail individual, kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, there's a great presentation, but you pull back the veil and people are barely pulling on the levers just trying to keep up the facade of, of the fact that we're all flawed. Um, and how refreshing it is for me to meet somebody who has no pretense and is willing to just say, hey, I, I have warts in my life and the Lord is working in them. I mean, it's refreshing. And I think it's refreshing on a corporate level, too, just to be able to say, you know what? We have flaws here at our church and the church around Fairfield has its flaws and has its imperfections. 
that God in his time is going to, as we pray and as we seek, um, God is going to heal. Um, but, but there is no church that is without its flaws, and I think it's important that God's people be honest about that. Otherwise, it's a deception, and really we're, we're in our pride trying to present something that's not true. Um, on the other hand, it's also, I think, a distortion not to be honest about where God is moving and, and to be able to say, hey, look what the, the Lord's doing. Because when we fail to acknowledge that, hey, while I may have some warts, God is working in this place in my life, we fail to give him uh, thanks and praise and to glorify him for the things that he's doing. And that's true on a corporate level, too, is to be able to say, look, look what God's doing. And to be able to um, give thanks and praise and sing and worship God because he is moving. And one of the things that um, a number of us, perhaps all of us, have noticed, is, and I want to draw attention to, is the fact that there is a way in which God is moving in our community that I think is undeniable, and it should cause us to, to lift our eyes up and praise the God of heaven because he is working. Despite all of the maladies that we may experience in the church, God is doing things. And in particular, what he's doing in mushrooming in, in Fairfield, um, this ministry of compassion um, on multi-levels. Uh, one of those levels, of course, you've heard about, you saw the video, you heard from Pete, this mushrooming is this, this leaven ministry, which is simply bringing the love of Jesus through the tangible work of tutoring to children's lives. And kids are coming to Christ, they're going to be baptized, and it's awesome to see that God is doing this. And not just in our church, but in other churches as well who have adopted and are looking to adopt and, and replicate it so that it becomes really a, a unified effort of the Christians in, in the city. And I... There's, to me, no explanation. I mean, it was kind of a pipe dream at one point, and then God brings fire to it, and then now it's a movement. Um, simultaneously, you also have this mushrooming uh, uh, ministry of compassion under the banner of Mission Solano that's going to have this grand opening on November 19th, the Breads to Life Center. That, and it has unified um, the churches of, of Fairfield in the common interest of those who are homeless and broken. And I don't know of any other city I've lived in where I've ever experienced that. And I think there's only one explanation, and that is that God is moving. And I'm excited about that. We should be excited about that. It's not simply a humanitarian effort. At the same time, it is important for us to recognize that there are pressures that would have us subtract that distinctively Christian element from it. That is, that we have to remember why we do what we do and in whose name we do it. Because if the name is forgotten, if the name is forgotten in any ministry, then it ceases to be Christian. One of the things that kind of makes me twitch a little bit is when someone says, well, we're a Christian-based ministry. I find myself thinking, well, what does Christian-based ministry do? Is that like it's the silent foundation of your organization that nobody ever talks about? Is it basically Jesus and the scriptures and the gospel are hidden in the basement and we can't allow them to come out because they are controversial? Is that what Christian-based ministry is? It seems to me where the name of Jesus is kept in the basement, it's not Christian ministry. Um, it's just Christianless, Christless humanitarian effort. And what we do, we want to do for the right purpose and in the name of the right person. And I know and believe those who are overseeing those two great ministries of compassion, I believe they will keep it on the right track of remembering and keeping us focused on why we're doing it and in whose name. We're doing it, and that Jesus will not be the silent foundation, never spoken, of these ministries of compassion. Well, with this emphasis on compassion, what God's doing in our community, I wanted to reflect for a few moments on, on compassion. 
And this is a reflection, um, which means it's basically ruminating and thinking about asking questions about this thing called compassion. What is it? Uh, whose responsibility is it? And how important is it in the life of the church or in the life of, of a Christian individual? Um, first question is, what is compassion? What, what is it really? And I think Psalm 82 gives us a pretty good picture of what compassion looks like in two of its facets. The psalmist writes this, and he writes it presumably to leaders within Israel, those who have power and authority, those who have um, the who are capable of rendering decisions regarding justice and legal matters. He writes this, he says, and first and foremost, he states the the obvious fact. God presides in in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods, quote unquote, gods. In other words, all human rulers ultimately answer to one who presides over the great assembly of authority in the universe. And that is God himself. And this is now what God says to those who wield authority and power and are capable of rendering decisions regarding justice and so forth. He says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And I believe where he talks about the unjust and wicked, he's talking about those who are arrogantly wealthy and taking advantage of those who are helpless. And he's calling them out on the carpet. He goes on in verse 3 and 4 to basically lay out the injunctions of compassion. He says, this is how you should rule and this is how you should act. He says, defend the cause of the weak and fatherless, maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed, and rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That there are in these three verses, two verses about defending the cause of the weak, maintaining the rights of the poor, and rescuing the weak and needy, there are two basic aspects to this ministry of compassion. One, of course, is defense, and the other one is deliverance. Um, That is important for people to have an advocate and and someone that they can appeal to for their cause when they find themselves powerless or helpless in an unjust situation. Um, The the psalm has in view uh, the defense of particularly those who are weak, those who are fatherless, who have no no legal rights to speak of, no father to protect them, uh, no mother to protect them, no inheritance in which to, to live. So they are utterly at the beck and call and the mercy of those who are over them. Um, So there's this ministry of defense, defending those who are powerless. That's one aspect of compassion. And the other one, of course, is delivering or rescuing those who are helpless, those who are needy and those who are are weak. When I I, I picture this, I I guess I, I come down to a simple definition of what compassion looks like in both of those aspects, defense and deliverance. And that is, those who, and this is kind of put it in application terminology for us, is, is it, it is, consists of, of simply this, is those who have the capacity to help, helping those who do not have the capacity to help themselves. Let me say that again. That compassion is, a simply, is essentially this, that, that it's those who have the capacity, the resources, the abilities to help, assisting those who do not have the capacity, the resources to help themselves. Now, that definition is important. For one reason, it, I think, uh, prevents us from experiencing a lot of false guilt associated with this thing we call compassion. The reason that's important is because in the social realm in which we live and exist, there are essentially two different groups of people when it comes to the needy. There are those who truly are powerless and helpless, 
um, and have little to no capacity to get themselves out of the situation that they're in. Someone loses his job and tries to get another job but can't get another job and loses his house and finds himself homeless but wants to be out of that situation. That is a person who has, has become more or less powerless and helpless and needs someone to assist them. That's one group who are truly helpless and powerless. Then there's a second group in our social sphere who choose and prefer to live in a, 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 a place of need or poverty or homelessness. That's what they choose, though they have the capacity to work and to earn money. Two very different groups of people. One are truly helpless and have no capacity. The other has the capacity but chooses to live in a position of poverty. The first group, I believe, is what Psalm 82 has in mind, those who are truly powerless and those who are truly helpless. Now, the second group of people, and and I hope I don't have to be more explicit, that choose to live in a tent by a river, despite the fact people offer them jobs, they need love too. But they need a different kind of love that doesn't perpetuate their sin of laziness. And if... If a a gift or if compassion perpetuates a person's sinful lifestyle, to me, that's not loving nor compassionate. It's that first group, however, that is in view here, is that compassion is, is those who have the capacity helping those who truly do not have the capacity to help themselves. That is, in my thinking, the best simple definition I can I can come up with regarding what is compassion. Well, then whose responsibility is compassion? Now, this particular psalm directs its um, injunctions to leaders, perhaps civic leaders, kings, princes, that your responsibility is to make sure that you protect the cause of those who are powerless, those who have no one to turn to. It's your responsibility to uh, protect them in a court of law. That's your job. But it is a ministry that I believe has been laid upon the church, in particular in its caring aspects, its giving aspects, its coming alongside and assisting aspects. In fact, James would call it one of the purest forms of Christian ministry and Christian faith. James chapter 1, verse 27 uh, says this, depending on your translation, that the religion that our God accepts as faultless, and by religion, in James' mind, there's only one true religion. It's not any religion. It's the religion of Jesus, rooted in the cross and carried forward by the Spirit of God, is that the religion that our, our Father in heaven accepts, as faultless or pure is this, to look after widows and orphans. Those who are completely powerless, those who, when you invest, they have nothing to give back, which is why it's one of the purest and most faultless forms of ministry, because there is no compromise of motive. I'm not doing it so that they'll give money to the church. We're doing it because God has called us to it. He has filled us with the compassion from him. And now I'm going to give it to them, other people, widows and orphans, those who are truly in a place of helplessness and powerlessness and and need. I think that it is a mantle that has been laid on the church in in particular. And when God's people, through the Levin ministry, through uh, Mission Solano ministry, and a whole host of other things, When they take upon themselves the responsibility for, we are the avenue of compassion in this community, then I believe that God shows himself in a way that it is as its purest. As we carry forward the word of the good news about what God has done in Jesus Christ, but born on the wings of these works of simple compassion, helping those who are truly powerless and helpless. 
And you know what? This is interesting for me. Is that, you know, in the first three centuries of the church, in which the church grew exponentially, it had no access to political power. But it grew exponentially because it took upon itself the mantle of this ministry of compassion. Things like taking exposed babies that parents didn't want, left out in the forest or out out on a hill, and taking them in as their own, or caring for slaves, or caring for the sick. And during those times when the church actually engaged in this work of compassion, this purest expression of the Christian faith, the church grew. But when the church gravitated toward, in history, um, grabbing hold of the handlebars of political power and trying to force the world to do what it should and can only do from the inside out, then the church has fallen on its face over and over and over and over again. Which for me is why I get excited when I hear about someone saying, hey, here's a need and we're getting together a group of people and we're going we're gonna to fill that need because there's people that are helpless and powerless. I get excited about that kind of spark because I think that's what the Lord would have us do. But when someone says, hey, we need to rally all the corporate bodies of Fairfield and we need to support this piece of legislation, I don't get excited. Because I don't believe there's anywhere in the New Testament where the corporate church has been called to wield political authority or power. Now, that doesn't mean we as individual Christians are not called specifically by God to go and exercise authority. William Wilberforce was someone who God called to a particular place in Britain to end slavery. He heard that call individually, but that is not a call that has been given to the church corporate. The call, the mantle that the Lord has given to us as the church corporate is that call of compassion. And that is the ministry we are to be about doing. In fact, all of the spiritual gifts in one sense are toward this ministry of compassion. Everything we do as ministry is, should be motivated by and carrying out this thing called compassion. And if we look around, there's oceans of opportunities all around us in our community that are right now um, empty, hollow. There's no one there offering compassion. If we have eyes to see it and recognize this is the mantle of the church, this is the call of the church, to exercise this kind of compassion and in this compassion to share ultimately why we do it and in whose name we do it and what he did for them. And it really starts to reverse things. You know, there are um, there's some ideas. There are countless voices of helpless and powerless unborn children right here in this city who have just a few people carrying the mantle of compassion to come alongside a pregnant mother who is, who is fearful, perhaps selfish or deceived, to say, you know what? Carry that baby to turn and give it life. If there's something that's lacking here at Parkway, it's, it's a someone or a group of people to keep at the front burner this issue of unborn life. They have no power in the womb to say, you know what? I'm here. They are helpless, and that's a whole entire group of people right here in our town that needs somebody to say, hey, at Parkway, I'm going to be the kind of lightning rod. I want to make sure that we keep this on the front burner so we continue to pray about it, so we continue to have people leaving this building and going over to Alpha Resource Center and helping. That's a whole ministry of compassion that, it, that is relatively weak in our, our city, and, and Parkway can do something about it. There are countless numbers of, of souls that fill rooms 
of the urine-odored carpet of convalescent homes. I remember when my grandfather was in one, and I walked into that place and thought, man, who'd ever want to live here? No one wants to live there. But so many of them are abandoned by family, and they have no one. Souls created in the image of God, spending their last days in, in a place like that, and no one comes. And all they really need, they're helpless and relatively powerless, is someone to just come along and listen, speak, touch, listen to their story. And that's a huge opportunity of compassion. We have sons that don't have dads in the home. We have daughters who don't have moms in the homes. That is, there are these huge gaping holes of compassion all around us for God's people to say, this is what we're called to. Even those random opportunities of, of compassion, like a bent elderly woman in the, parkway, or in, the, in the parking lot of Safeway trying to heft her walker into the back of her car and unsuccessful in doing so. Meanwhile, her groceries are spilled all over the asphalt, no one there to help. That's precisely the God-ordained minute in which God places his people, his Christians, filled with the heart of compassion to come along and say, let me help you with that, and put the walker in to pick up her groceries and help her home. That is pure and undefiled religion. That is the compassion that I believe God has called us to as, as people and as a body. Um, so all of us, the church, this body made up of individuals, each one of us has been given this responsibility to exercise ministry of compassion um, whenever we have opportunity to seize it. Some may be called the particular groups or ministries or programs, and others might just be called to do it on an individual level, but that's, that's one of the purest expressions of Jesus alive in the church is compassion. So that's who is responsible for it. We are. And the last question is how important is it? How important really is compassion? And we have all these things. How important is it on the whole uh, scale of importance? In my thinking, you always measure the importance of something based upon how important it is to the Lord himself. He is the measure of importance. And what one discovers in the scripture is that compassion is near the center of God's heart, his compassion, mercy, love. In fact, one could argue that entire work of creation is basically the canvas on which God himself will reveal the depth of his compassion. So, for instance, when God comes to Moses and lets his glory pass, that glory passes with a declaration of who God is. And the very first word that defines God's character is the word compassion. Exodus 34, the declaration as the glory is passing by, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. It's the very first defining word for his character. And the unfolding story of the Bible continues to reiterate over and over and over again that he is compassionate to the powerless and to the helpless, that he ultimately is the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows. So he sees Hagar in the desert with her son Ishmael about to die because of lack of water. And what does he do? He bubbles water out of the ground because he's compassionate. He sees his people powerless and helpless under the dominion and oppression of Egypt. And what does he do? To their cries, he stretches forth his arm, he defends their cause, and he gathers them to himself. Why? Because he's a God who is compassionate. When they're dying of thirst in the wilderness and they cry out to God, what does he do? He exercises compassion and breaks open rocks and sends fountains of water. 
that they're nearly starving to death and they cry out and God sends manna from heaven because he is a compassionate God. He's the kind of God who multiplies flour and oil for a widow. In fact, it was so much a mark of God's character that when Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction because he knew God was compassionate. So God sent a little fish, swallowed him up, puked him out on the beach to which he went to Nineveh and said those depressing words, God's going to destroy this place if you don't repent, to which they do repent and it sends him into an emotional and depressing tailspin because he knew God was going to be compassionate. It's like, I know you're going to do this. Because he was convinced that that's one of the central marks and hallmarks of the heart of God is that he is compassionate to people who are powerless, helpless. And that great story of God's compassion climaxes in the final triumph of compassion over sin at the cross where Jesus, as I prayed, took upon himself the massive weight of the putridness of the sin of his people. And he came to preach the message of good news to those in prison, spiritual prison, and to open the spiritually blind eyes that don't even know that there's a God so that they could see God, and open the ears so that they could hear God. That is fundamentally the ministry of Jesus on the cross is a ministry of compassion. That all of us, every single one of us, at one point, and every single being who's lived on planet Earth except Jesus has ultimately been helpless, powerless, weak, frail, and in prison. Helpless against our sin, powerless against the flesh, incapable of removing ourselves from this thing called the judgment of God. We can't prevent death. And according to the scriptures, we're under the iron fist of the devil. But God, who is infinitely compassionate, looks and saw, looked and saw a people powerless and helpless, immersed in the mire of their own sin, and he said, I'm going to do something about that. And God, in an act of compassion, freed us, the powerless and the helpless. It's a story of salvation. God's compassion runs deep at the cross. God's compassion also is seen in what he has delivered us to. There is this image that I have been thinking about. It comes from the scripture. In fact, it's a theme that winds its way through the scripture that pretty much condenses down what God in his compassion has delivered us to and promised to us. And it's this motif of the house, dwelling in a house. You'll find that word throughout the scripture. Psalm 84, for example the psalmist writes and says, he said, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Thinking of where God lives. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. As if that's the end all be all of life if we could just dwell in your house. I mean, the psalmist was used to going to the house of the Lord, but not being able to necessarily go into the house, the temple. You have to stand at the outskirts, depending on his class. And there were a few who were able to go in, but they couldn't stay there. They had to go and then come back out. You couldn't dwell there. There's only one person who could dwell in the house of the Lord. He said, blessed are those who could actually dwell there. Now, it's not just visit, but actually live there. That's their home address. That's David looked at that image of a house. He says, there's, there's only one really th thing I want. Only one thing I desire. The end all be all of my life is that I may dwell, inhabit, live, take up residence, in the house of the Lord forever, not just for a period of time. I don't want to visit. I want to live there. Where you don't have to leave. 
And you go to your relative's house and sometimes you don't want to leave. Well, that's what he wants, but he wants to go to the Lord's house. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. And then Jesus comes along, the great expression of compassion. And what does he do? He says to the disciples, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that place is in my father's house where there are lots of rooms. That I'm, I'm making it so that you don't have to dwell out in the servants' quarters or out in the stables with the hired hands. No, I'm going to make it so you dwell in his house with the protective covering of God himself. And you're going to dine not at a table away from the head table. You are going to dine at his table. In other words, what's in, envisioned here is that God from the beginning of history, he, he decided in an act of compassion, I'm not only going to relieve people of their power of the situation of sin, but I am going to bring them into my home. And then I'm going to have the entire new heavens, new earth as the backyard in which they can experience me in. In other words, he offers us everything. That's the compassion, the boundless, infinite passion, compassion of the Lord that offers everything, everything to us. House. Someday, our mailing address is not going to be here. Sometime our mailing address is going to be in the house of God, where we will be with him. I tell you, that brings comfort to somebody who's losing their home to a bank. It's like, you know what? This place is just a home. But I have another address. And that address cannot be taken away from me because my God is compassion. He's already paid for the house, namely through the blood of Jesus. So you ask me, how important is compassion? Well, more importantly, ask the scripture, how important is compassion? Darn it, the center of God's heart in salvation. It is core to God. And if, and if we, by the Spirit of God, and the Spirit is the only one who can take that knowledge and impress it into the affections so that we actually know that God is compassionate. When the Spirit of God makes that a reality in your heart, it alters life. It altered a woman who was forgiven sin by Jesus, and she was so altered that she took her expensive vase and broke it over him because to whom much is forgiven because of the compassion of Jesus um, or he who forgives much, loves much, or is forgiven much, loves much. She understood how life-altering, grasping the compassion of God is. It, it allows one to experience that spark of joy no matter what's going on in your life. Because you know in the end, I have a home address, and that home address is with the Lord. No one can take that from me. And it's been paid for completely, so one can worship regardless of what's going on when they get God's compassion. That it comforts us. You're not going to get comfort from the bank, the loan industry, your HMO, human resources department who's laying off more people. They're not going to say, well, we'll consider your case separate and have compassion on you. No, you're going to be cut. But to know that there is one whose compassion is always there. God's compassion is never withdrawn from his people, ever. When I think of the Lord, and this might be a little bit crude, I, I think of him as one of those drivers on the highway who stops every time he sees someone on the side of the road with a flat tire or the hoods up, waving, I need help. He's the kind of guy who stops every time for his people. He's the kind of father who, when he hears his baby cry in the next room in the crib, he always gets up. He always goes to the room. And he always checks on the child. That's, that's what I picture God as being by way of analogy. He's always compassionate, but we have to trust that 
in his sovereign wisdom, he knows best how to apply his compassion to our life. And it may not be in the way we expect it, but we trust that his compassion is always surrounding us, even in the most difficult situations in which we don't understand. Compassion is still here, new every morning. So even if there's no figs on the tree and there's no olive oil and there's no grapes on the vine, I still will rejoice in the Lord my God. That is what that compassion enables us to do. But it also, I think, when you get it, that becomes the spark and the motivation behind then giving it to other people. Before we can ever, as Christians, really give compassion, you have to first receive it. Before we can ever help the powerless, we must first recognize we ourselves are powerless and accept God give it, we can't give it to other people. You know, I think that there is the Christian compassion, truly Christian compassion, is in a category all by itself. There's a lot of compassion in the world that goes by the name of compassion. But Christian compassion is distinctive. A lot of the compassion that you'll find outside true Christianity will be the kind of compassion that proceeds along the lines of human strength and glories in the wealth and the riches and the family name. So that when sums of money or clothes are given, that in the end, the one who gave it then is given a special name on a, on a building or on a brick. And in the end, it's a, it's a human exalting thing. Because in the scripture, as well as in life, the one who gives always gets the glory. And that's not Christianity. So Christian compassion proceeds along the opposite lines of strength. That is truly Christian compassion proceeds along the lines of human weakness. That the only thing I can give you is what has first been given to me. I recognize that everything in my life, every breath I have, every heartbeat, every single cent in the bank, is an offering of God's compassion to me. So what I give to you has been first given to me by Him. So the mercy I give you is not mine, it's His. The compassion I give you is not mine, it's His. It's, I am by myself, apart from grace, powerless to give it to you. Which is why it must be done in the name of, of, of Jesus. You know, that's what Paul said. There's nothing that I have that I have not first been given. And when you realize that, then whatever you're giving to somebody, be it clothes, food, a touch on the arm, a prayer in a, in a convalescent home bed, I'm giving you what he gave me. And I've tasted the living water of his spirit, and I want to give to you. I have tasted the forgiveness of sins and the compassion of God, and I want you to taste it too. One must first receive it for us to be able to give it. I'm going to let the elements at the table finish this sermon, finish this message. Because there is a desperate need in, in our world for living bread. The only bread that can give life, and that is Jesus. Jesus.